0: invite you to open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 20. 20th chapter of John is where we'll start and we'll get there in just a moment. In fact, it'll be John chapter 20, and we'll be starting in verse 19, 19 if you have your Bible. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us, descend in your Holy Spirit, give us understanding to the words that we are about to read, that we might know that the tomb is empty and Christ is risen from the dead, for it's in his name we pray, Amen heard a story recently about a friend of mine who went to Colorado to ski. I've never been to skiing in Colorado. My skiing uh, doesn't extend much beyond Pennsylvania where it's ice. I, I, I don't know what real snow is like to ski on, but it's just ice up in Pennsylvania. And she hadn't been on the slopes for, for quite a while, and she's the kind who frets, you know. Or you, maybe you're a fretter. Not a fritter, but a fretter. And, and, you know, just worried a little bit about this and worried a little bit about that. And she hadn't been skiing in a long time, and she was fretting. Maybe I ought to take a lesson, or maybe I ought to stay on the bunny hill on the first day. And all the group that she was with, and her son was there. And they said, no, no, come on, come on, we'll stay right with you. Come on with us. You can see the story where it's going. Uh, so up the, up the ski lift they go, and they go, and they say, oh, it's just a green run. Well, a green run in Colorado apparently is much more than a green run in Pennsylvania, okay? So they all get off the lift, and there they are at the top of the hill, one by one. They all start off. She's left with only her son, and her son looks at her and says, Mom, it's time to believe. And he goes like that. <laughs> She went and survived it, okay? She went and survived it. You know, sometimes, I don't know if you're the type of person to make a list. You have a pro and a con list if you have a big decision. And sometimes a pros and a cons list just does not suffice for an answer. It just does not give us enough information or can't quantify that information clearly enough for us to make a decision about things. Perhaps when you were younger or maybe recently you asked somebody, how do you know you're in love? Quantify that one, okay? I asked that question to somebody, and, and he just looked at me and said, you just know. And I said, well, when will I know? He said, you, you will know. And that, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Well, we come today, Easter Sunday, to an empty tomb. Well, how do you know, Rand? Can you take us to that empty tomb and show us? No, but I know. And we're going to see why it is that we know these things to be true. It's time to believe. It's time to believe. What do you mean by that, Randy? I mean today some have come here because they are honest to goodness, sold out believers. They believe in the resurrection already. They are here because it is Easter and it's time to worship the Lord and be excited about the fact that he has forgiven us and we can live in that power and ability of the resurrection, of the empty tomb. Then there are some here who are eh, maybe a little wishy-washy on that. Okay? Because in their minds, they think, well, people just don't rise from the dead. How can that be? And you're having a little conflict within yourself. Well, I've been taught this all my life, but I'm just, you know, I'm not sure about it. Then there are others who are here because, well, you're just supposed to be in church on Easter, right? You feel good when you're here. You don't know why, you can't explain it, but you know there's something that draws you here. You know that when you leave here, something has happened, but you're not sure about it. And you may not believe in the resurrection at all, but you know you need to be here on Easter morning. Well, that 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 sense of peace that you get is the Lord working in your heart, calling you. It's time. It's time to believe. Now, It's time for each of us to come face to face with the claims of Christ in an empty tomb and decide if our lives are going to be different because the tomb is empty. Now, you may think, well, what do you mean different because the tomb is empty? Uh, As we talked about in the early service outside, you can come to the cross and you can find forgiveness and find salvation there, but it's at the empty tomb where Christ becomes our Lord. He either runs our lives or we run our life. And which would you rather have? Would you rather have an all-powerful, omnipotent, caring, loving, righteous Savior who has given his life for you run your life, or would you rather do it? I'd rather have my Savior run my life. Scripture teaches us time and time again that it is time to believe that the tomb is empty. So let's start, and we're going to start in the New Testament, and we're going to work backwards looking at individuals who came face to face with these things that it was time to believe. John chapter 20, verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. This is after the resurrection. This is after the resurrection. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples, therefore, rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus, therefore, said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came to the doors, having been shut And stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas. Now you notice Jesus wasn't in the room when Thomas said, unless I can put my fingers in and my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. Jesus wasn't there. But he shows up again eight days later. And the first thing he does is look to Thomas. Say, reach here your finger. See my hand. Reach here your hand. Put it in my side. And be not unbelieving, but be believing. Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. See, Thomas makes a claim. I'm only going to believe if I get my fingers in those holes. That's the only way. It's very existential. I've got to touch it. I've got to sense it. I've got to see it right in front of me. And unless I do see it there, I will not believe. Thomas wanted physical proof that Jesus came out of that tomb. Physical proof. Undeniable proof. Maybe you came today, you want undeniable proof. I'm not going to, I can't bring Jesus down here to put your fingers in the holes or to touch his side. He's not going to physically leave the right hand of the Father just so you can touch him. One reason is his response to Thomas. Look at the second half of verse 29. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. See, Jesus appeared to some 500 witnesses or so. After his resurrection. And those people obviously came face to face with the risen Lord. But there were plenty of others who did not see him and yet they believed. And that's what he calls. He said, they're wonderful. The people who saw me, who had evidence. That's great. More blessed are those who do not see me and yet they believe. How are they able to believe? It's because the spirit comes upon them. God opens their eyes to the mystery of the risen Christ and the love that he has for them, and their hearts are forever changed, forever changed. Thomas, who didn't, eventually did not put his finger in the holes, he sees Jesus and he says, and probably the greatest confession of faith in the New Testament, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Let's go a little bit further back. See, it was time for Thomas to believe there. It was time for him to believe. Go back to Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah. The first chapter. Now during Lent, I'll give you a little background. During Lent we studied the book of Lamentations, which Jeremiah also wrote. And they were a funeral lament, five funeral laments, for the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah wrote those. And they're, they come right after the book that bears his name. Jeremiah was a prophet to the people of Jerusalem mainly, and the Lord called him and he prophesied for some 50 years and nobody believed him. Okay. Could you imagine that going around saying your house is on fire for 50 years, but nobody believes you. Even though there's smoke coming out of the roof, nobody believes you. Jeremiah chapter one, begin verse four. So now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. You see this. Before he was formed in the womb, God had already said what Jeremiah was going to be. He had already laid his hand upon him and chosen him and said, I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. Verse six. Then I said, "Alas, Lord God! Behold, I do not know how to speak." We're full of excuses, aren't we? Remember when God said to Moses, "Moses is crying out to the Lord. When are you going to let those people go? When are you going to do something?" And God said, "Moses, I'm going to send you." And then Moses came up with this big list of excuses. Oh, "I don't know how to speak. I don't. I'm not sharp. I don't." And Lord had answer for all those. Jeremiah comes up with the same type types of excuses. "I don't know how to speak. I'm just a youth." But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. My words in your mouth. Jeremiah was deprived of marriage of children of comfort he was an outcast from society everybody hated him I mean how would you like to preach nothing but bad news for 50 years you just don't make a lot of friends and influence people that way okay you don't get invited to a lot of dinner parties for good conversation well Jeremiah what did you do today why I laid out in the street uh cut my hair and scattered it to the wind and told everybody judgment was coming Oh, great. What did you do? Okay. You see, you say, well, let's not talk to Jeremiah too much. Fifty years, nobody believed him. Now, here in the early part of Jeremiah, this book, the Lord says, you know, when you were, before you were in your mother's womb, I determined that you would be my prophet. He says, I don't know how to speak. He says, I am going to put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah, it's the time to believe. It's time to believe that before you were formed, I had called you, I had prepared this road. All you have to do is say the words that I give you. And he said, You won't have success. Nobody's going to listen to you. In fact, Jeremiah is there all through the siege of Jerusalem. Jerusalem falls, five eighty six BC. He's outside the city. People have been killed and taken into slavery, and they all are weeping and saying, How could this happen? And Jeremiah said, I told you it was coming. Because Jeremiah did believe, he didn't stick with the excuses, now I'm just a youth, I don't know what to say. He did believe that the Lord had called him, placed him there for a specific purpose. And that was to declare God's judgment and God's faithfulness as well. Turn over now to Judges chapter 6. While you're going there, I'm going to give you one that, that we're not going to look up, but all of us know this one. First Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Okay. You know, Samuel came to Jesse's house. He said, I'm here to anoint the next king. He doesn't like any of the sons Jesse has. They, he calls the, the smallest one from the field, and it's David. And here's a man after God's own heart. And he anoints him as the next king of Israel. And what does David do? He goes back to the field and tends the sheep. And his brothers go off to war to fight the Philistines. So Jesse, the dad, says, David, I made up some nice food. Take it up to your brothers at the front and give some to their commanders. So David goes up to the front where they're battling the Israelites and the Philistines. And he gets up there and there's no battle going on. And he walks around, and he looks around, and here stands this giant called Goliath. And David calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. Okay. Now, you could call somebody a Philistine today, and that just might go right over their head. But if, if they know anything about Scripture, they won't be very happy if you call him Philistine. Okay. So he goes up there, and he says, this Philistine is taunting the living God, and what are you people doing about it? I said, well, he's too big. Look, he's 8 feet tall. He's the biggest guy we've ever seen. And it was at that moment that it, for David, it was time to believe. Either he was going to stand on and in and rely upon the promises of God, or, or he was going to pitch it all. So he goes to Saul, and Saul is head and shoulders above everybody else in height, and says, I will fight the Philistine, and I will go because he insults the Lord God. And Saul says, well, great, take my armor. And you can imagine David, who's just a teenager, trying to put on Saul's armor. It's huge. He cast off the armor of Saul. He goes forward in the armor of God. And the last thing to go through Goliath's mind on that day was what? The stone that went right through his head. It was time for David to believe. David had spent all those years tending sheep. And what did he fight off and protect the sheep from? The lions and the bears that were prevalent in Israel at that time. He had used that slingshot to fight them off. God had been preparing him again and again and again for this moment, and it was time for David to believe. And he did. He went right out and did it. Judges chapter 6, verse 36. We all know this guy, Gideon. Gideon is walking a fine line here between Asking God and pushing God, okay? We never want to push God into something. He asked him, verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If thou wilt deliver Israel through me, as thou hast spoken, behold, I'll put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that thou wilt deliver Israel through me, as you have spoken. And it was so. The next morning, when they arose early and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Now, that's a sign. He asked the Lord for a sign, and he got it. But here it is in David's mind, or Gideon's mind. You know what? When the sun comes up, the ground dries, but the fleece is going to hold the water anyway. Do you think the Lord would be upset if I asked him again to do something? So he does. Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, do not let thine anger burn against me that I can speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece and let there be dew on all the ground. And God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece and dew was all on the ground. God had called Gideon to be a judge of Israel, one of those people who would deliver the nation in this in-between time from its enemies and Gideon went forward because of this with an army of 33,000 soldiers to fight the Midianites and what did God say to him you got too many okay you got too many for this battle so he weeds them out once and then they all go to he says everybody who's afraid can go home okay I'm afraid I want to go home Then they go down and get a drink. Everybody who's drinking a certain way, I want them to go home. Gideon was left with 300 soldiers. It was time for Gideon to believe. Remember, he put the fleece out, and the Lord had honored that. And now it was time for him to believe. Either I'm going to trust the Lord has called me to this, or I'm going to give it all up. There was no turning back, no second guessing. The signs from the Lord could not be ignored, and the army of the Midianites was destroyed. Destroyed. One more, back to Genesis chapter 22. Of all the people on earth, at this time, God picks Abraham to be his man. He picks Abraham to be the father of Israel, the father of the nation of of his chosen people and the Lord declares to Abraham that his descendants would be like the sands on the shore like the stars in the sky too numerous to count so Abe acts on that promise okay God says I'm going to have descendants and he and Sarah are pretty old right now remember that so he tries to adopt his nephew and Lord says no no it's a son from you so Sarah says, well, okay, I'm too old. Take my handmaiden. And Abraham and the handmaiden produced Ishmael. And God said, no, no, it'll be from you and Sarah. And Sarah did what? <laughs> can kidding me. I'm 90 years old. I don't have babies at 90 years of age. Sure enough, Isaac was produced from Abraham and Sarah. And that was the... In a sense, the first fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to make a mighty nation of Abraham. So, he has one son. He has this promise from God. And now we have chapter 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, Ishmael doesn't count here, Your only son whom you love. He kind of builds here. Okay, I want your son, your only son, the son that you love. I think we get the message how close Isaac is to Abraham here. He says, take your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, Abraham's in a struggle. You've promised me all these things. But now you want me to offer my son as a burnt offering? Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. It wasn't any hesitation. Abraham is conflicted, certainly, but there's no hesitation because Abraham believes... On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham says to his said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. Now, this is plural. Okay. So Abraham believes. He believes the larger promise that God has made, that he will make his descendants through Isaac as numerous as the stars. He said, We're coming back. Even though he said, Offer your son to me as a burnt offering. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, he's probably a teenager now, smart, smart young man, because watch the question he asks. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father? He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? ...for the burnt offering. Okay, where is the lamb? And Abraham, in a moment of great belief... ...said, God will provide for himself... ...the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Remember, God had said, offer your son to me... ...as a burnt offering. But Abraham believes so much in the promises of God... He says God will provide the lamb. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And this is, this is where the rubber meets the road for Abraham. He stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. You can see it. he's got it in his hand. He's ready to do it. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up a burnt offering in the place of his son. God provided for himself an offering that was fit. Here it is a ram that covered the sins. A burnt offering was for sins. In our lives, our Heavenly Father has provided the offering that is fit to cover our sins. That is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You see, today it's time to believe. Either you believe that Christ has died for your sins and rose from the grave, or you don't. And if you don't, you're lost. Today, the grace of Jesus Christ is offered to you freely. He has given us his son. The tomb is empty. The sinless, spotless lamb of God has given his life to pay the penalty for our sin. And the body that went in the tomb dead came out alive. And it is time to believe that the Lord of all creation loves you enough to call you to believe today. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, it is an honor and a pleasure to be gathered here today. We have had the chance to sing of your praises, to come to your word, and to look at these these illustrations, these men who were just like us, fickle and feeble, but yet they believed. Yet they clung to the things of your promises. They clung to your character. They held tightly to those things that you had promised, and when it looked the darkest, they still believed. Because you are always faithful. You always fulfill those things that you say you always empower us to do the things that you call us to do and you never desert us no matter what the stresses are upon us no matter what the trials we face no matter that we think that the world around us is about to crush us and there is no hope but yet you are there sustaining us seeing us through calling us to come believe on me today Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Move in our hearts today, Lord. We pray that we would not walk from this place until we have believed in the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is 377, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. As what we have done in the past several years for our um, benediction response, we invite anybody out here that would like to join us in the Hallelujah chorus to come in on the fourth verse of Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. You'll see copies of the music on the music stands as you come up. Just join the choir as we do the hallelujah chorus when we're finished with this. Anybody that would like to. But 377 Joyful joy.